1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Basketball Conference VACC Football Podcast, Episode 2. My name is Joey Weaver. I come from FromTheRumbleSeat.com on the SB Nation Network covering Georgia Tech. Joining me, as always, my co-host, Mike McDaniel of InsideTheACC.com, covering the whole con- whole conference. Mike, good to, be, uh, good to be back. We got through some technical difficulties here on Monday. A little bit late recording this one, but uh, it's, it's it's good to be back on talking some, some hardcore ACC action.
0: Yeah, definitely. I just hope that um, it was worth the wait. So we're just going to have to give the people what they want once again here for week two. Um, Obviously struggled here with little technical difficulties, but I think we're back on track. So uh, hopefully it's a successful podcast. First of all, let's start by thanking everybody that reached out to us. First of all, um, answering reader questions this week was pretty cool. Um, Also, all the people who listen to our podcast, we had a couple hundred views um, or listens, I guess, uh, on the podcast, which is really cool, um, after only one episode. So thank you all for the support and for the listening.
1: Absolutely. We had some great response, a lot of uh, interaction already on Twitter, via email, etc. Um, I, I was really impressed. I, I'm amazed that this many people want to hear what you and I had to say. Um, I want to especially thank my mom, who's apparently the podcast number one fan. Uh, she listened to the thing like five times, it turns out, so uh i will i will keep the language pg so that uh my mom is not upset with us um also you might notice that hopefully if we've sorted it out by now i do not sound like i'm in like antarctica or like chicago or some sort of you know wind tunnel um like i said you know it's a learning process that was something we had to figure out is the sound quality hopefully this time around it is better although we have not yet put the final product together as i talk to you so we'll have to see
0: yeah, I was about to say, and you know, if it's still bad, we can always try again next week. So, um, you know, hopefully, it doesn't deter from the overall quality of the podcast. I think we have a lot of good stuff that we're going to talk about here this week.
1: Yeah, and I think we should kick it off. So, in in response to last week's uh, kind of inaugural episode of this basketball conference podcast, uh, I got a lot of I got a lot of heat on from the rumble seat from the commenters who loved the discussion. But we're not a big fan of the fact that you refer to your alma mater as Tech, where I refer to mine as Georgia Tech. And I feel like I should explain myself a little bit. So uh, I refer to it Georgia Tech largely because I've moved to Houston, Texas, from Atlanta. And if I walk around here telling people that I went to Tech, they're all like, Red Raiders? Like, no, 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 no not that one. You know, it's Georgia Tech. So I've gotten in the habit of, you know, Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech, blah, 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 blah. Uh, but, Mike, they do bring up a good point that we're kind of up against it if we're referring to our own institutions as tech here, because that could definitely confuse a few people.
0: Uh, yeah, definitely. So I guess we have something we got to sort out here, I guess. Which school has been better at football? Um in, in their short history of playing each other. Uh, I think that's kind of where we have to start this whole argument here in the Battle of the Techs. Um, I would, 13 games I would go ahead. I would
1: say that that seems fair, but I also kind of know where this is going to end up.
0: Yeah, um, They have played only 13 times because of course Virginia Tech uh, didn't join the ACC um, until the 2004 season. So playing in different conferences, uh, Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech never really saw each other. Uh, until then, but since then, the 13 times they've played Virginia Tech with a 9-4 to series advantage, Joey. So um, I think that's a feather in my cap for the Hokies for, um, for point number one.
1: Well, and correct me if I'm wrong, but with Frank Beamer's retirement, I believe he passes the baton to none other than Paul Johnson as the longest tenured coach in the conference uh, Johnson, of course, coming up on season number nine. Yeah, on the
0: and flats. before that, he was just running that stupid option offense at Navy that nobody can stand outside of Navy and Georgia Tech fans. They seem to really enjoy the option. Um, I say that sarcastically. I know a lot of fans really actually hate the option, um, but that's the that's the offense that Georgia Tech has run now for the better part of the last nine years. So. Uh, hopefully they run it a little bit better this year than they did last year, Joey.
1: Trust me when I tell you that I am not alone in having a very strong love-hate relationship with that offense. Uh, I love it when it is good. I hate it when it is bad. And I think that is a pretty prevailing theme across the fan base. Um, I will say, Johnson at Navy, you are correct, he also with that goofy, ridiculous offense broke something like a 50-some-odd-year winning streak by Notre Dame in that series. And I will bring up, this was flying around Twitter yesterday, Uh, Florida State and Clemson have lost a combined three games to ACC opponents that were not each other over the past four years. Two of them were to Johnson's goofy, weird option offense. So as far as knocking off the conference, you know, Big boys, I guess you might say. Uh, yeah. It helps. Um,
0: mostly because a lot of defenses just never prepare for it. You know what I mean? They see it once a year. So it's Georgia Tech week, and all of a sudden you got to change from, you know, a nickel defense down to, like, a 4-4. I mean, it's crazy. Um, the, op- the option offense has a lot of weird things um, to defenses. You see it with Virginia Tech. Every time they play Georgia Tech, all of a sudden you see a bunch of linebackers who normally don't get any playing time, and now they're playing a ton against Georgia Tech. Um, and a lot of the uh, the nickel backs we add, you know, we play five five uh, defenders, you know, D backs in the in the back end of the secondary, and all of a sudden you get um, an extra linebacker in there. It definitely changes the complexion of the game. So the Georgia Tech offense does do that to a degree. Um, they'll throw you a little bit off balance from stuff that you'll normally see on the offensive side of the football in the ACC.
1: Yeah, interesting stuff for sure, and something that, that gets the team noticed at least on a on a national scale, for better or worse. Um, but I'm sure that rivalry week between Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech, the uh, the Tech Mobile, as it were, uh, will be a, a fun week. On I, was the say, I was gonna say I was gonna say a lot fall.
0: of bets will be thrown around um, that week. I feel like and somebody is going to be paying someone else a lot of money, and I guarantee you, Joey, this year it will not be me. It will not be me.
1: Strong words, Mike. Strong words. Yeah, we'll see. I hope you're eating them one day. We will see. Mike, There, there is another maybe somewhat less important piece of business that we need to get to here. Um, it, was, it was announced earlier this week. It, well, it was speculated earlier this week and then announced earlier today, we record this Thursday evening, that the ACC is in even heavier cahoots with ESPN than before, in that they are due to launch a full-on TV network, a la the SEC network, here in a few years, and they will begin covering uh, covering their content a little heavier this fall via the Internet. And, and I think that you know a few more details. I was going to say, say, first of all, let's
0: start point. with this. It's about time. So now when I'm watching Virginia Tech play another ACC school that nobody really cares about, let's go with, like, Wake Forest. Um, I don't have to go flip to like my local TV channel that nobody ever watches anyway and find Raycom Sports for two and a half hours on a Saturday afternoon. Um, now I think finally we're going to get some resolution here. The ACC, of course, one of the few conferences in the country uh, that didn't have their own television network. Of course, you have the Big Ten network, the SEC network that ESPN launched a couple of years ago. Um, the Big 12, they don't really have their own network, but they have that agreement with Fox Sports. So you see a lot of Big 12 games Pac-12 games as well on Fox Sports and their family of networks. So the ACC was really left out in the dark for quite some time. So it's about time that they finally, um, launched their own sort of television network. Uh, what I think is really cool about this is that the partnership between ESPN and the ACC, I mean, say what you want about ESPN. Some people have come to love it. Some people have now hated it just because of their slanted coverage every once in a while, depending on what sport you like to watch. Um, of course, there've been the stories about ESPN losing their revenue share uh, over the last couple of years. Um, but they're the premier network, and they will be until Fox Sports tries to knock them off. This is a big feather in ESPN's cap, though, having the ACC now um, stick with them for quite some time. Now it's going to be through the 2035-2036 academic year. So now a 20-year partnership, of course. Um, like you alluded to, Joey, they're going to start with digital, um, the digital content this fall. So that's everything on the Internet. And then they're going to have a traditional uh, TV channel launching in the 2019 school year, 2018-2019. Uh, so we're still a couple of years away from seeing the actual television network um, in, in full motion. But the digital channel is going to be called ACC Network Extra. Um, it's going to be a website that's actually launching in about two weeks. So beginning, of August, um, beginning to middle of August is when we'll start to see it. But it will definitely be ready in time for the start of the season uh, in late August, early September. Um, So, it's going to be available to everybody who already has access to ESPN3. So, you know, if you have, basically, if you have access to internet, you're going to be able to see all the ACC content you want. Um, What's really cool about this is that the ACC Network Extra, the internet site, uh, will be a live events platform just like the television network will be, and there will be 600 live sporting events uh, in this coming year. So... It's pretty crazy. They've moved so quickly. I know this has probably been in the works for quite some time. Of course, it finally gets out earlier this week, but just like that, they're going to have 600 live sporting events this coming school year. So it's very cool. In that regard, and they say they're planning on having at least 900 events by the 2019 year when the television network launches. Um, speaking of the television network. They're planning to launch uh, or, or to broadcast 450 live events per year, which includes 40 football games. Now, whether or not that's going to be in conference, out of conference, kind of remains to be seen. The details are a little muddy at this point. Um, but 150 men and women's basketball games. And I think what's important to note here is a lot of the stuff that's going to be going on here with the games. People are saying, okay, well, 40 football games, that doesn't seem like that many. But when you sit there and you consider the fact that ESPN, ESPNU, ESPN2, ABC, none of those games that have already been planned to go on those networks count in this calculation. So there are a lot of ACC games that you and I will watch, Joey, any given year where, um, say, Georgia Tech's playing, for example, Georgia Tech played Florida State on ESPN last season um, on a Saturday night game at 8 o'clock. Everybody watched that game, of course. and. That was on ESPN, but of course now it's not going to even count that into consideration with the ACC network. So strictly on the ACC network alone, uh, there will be at least 40 football games per year, which is very cool. Um, So games you haven't normally cared about watching, you're going to be able to see them now. Um, And of course, throughout the rest of the year, over 200 other sporting events across the country, or across the conference is 27 sponsored sports. My assumption is there's going to be a lot of baseball, a lot of soccer, maybe some volleyball. Uh, Mixed in there as well. Um, So it's very cool. ACC schools now having access to over 1,300 live events per year. Um, One other small note, Joey, before I let you talk here. Um, The basketball side of it, I know we're a football podcast, but this is a big deal for football as well. Because now the basketball league is scheduling 20 games now in conference every year. And that's going to support the ACC Network's need for content during the winter months, of course, driving the money up for the rest of the conference during football season as well, which, of course, will be, uh, it's, it's no secret, it'll be the television's moneymaker. So, uh, big deal for the ACC this week, finally getting their TV network underway.
1: Yeah, I, I think one of the things of note here is that the ACC becomes the fourth conference with its own uh, TV network, the second under the... ESPN banner with the SEC, like you mentioned, uh, the big 10 obviously having one with Fox and then the PAC 12 having kind of an independent one, uh, the, the big 12 kind of lagging behind a little bit, I think majorly inhibited by the longhorn network and the deal that was associated with that. Um, but I, I get the feeling this, this really elevates the conference. Um, it gives it a little bit of more of a sense of legitimacy, not that it wasn't legitimate before go ACC. Um, but it's, it's one of these things that, uh, it gives you more exposure on a national level. It, it really, it'll provide more revenue to each of the schools. Uh, it'll, it, it's a positive thing all around. Uh, a little bit of an interesting deal for ESPN, given kind of what their recent history has been as far as just losing a ton of subscribers. Um, but I think really you can look at this as an expansion of ESPN's deal with the ACC, which was pre-existing. They were already uh, broadcasting several of the conference's games, at this point, it's just, it'll be even more in a more concentrated format across several different sports. Um, I, I personally really look forward to the launching of this digital network here in the coming weeks, and then the, the full-on TV network here in a few years. Uh, I think this will be a, a really good thing for the conference and will help to solidify where it's headed in the future um, as far as you know revenue, attention, um, perception, everything else. Um, but do you get, do you get the feeling that this really elevates the conference, say, or is um, it just kind of I still think this a, another um, I, I'm you know not sure how an, another thing to do in the current age was, of college
0: sports? The conference is really lagging behind, like you mentioned. Um, you know the issues that they've had trying to get this underway over the last couple of years has kind of been insurmount, oh, nearly insurmountable. Um, when you consider what John Swafford, the ACC commissioner, has been saying. It's like, yeah, you know, it's coming at some point, but it doesn't really look like we're going to get the network anytime soon. And that really hurts when you see the Big Ten, of course, the Pac-12, the SEC, um, all these other conferences having their own networks and having that outlet where they can watch their schools and their schools exclusively. The ACC didn't have that, and I think it really hurt them. Um, of course, you never really see a shortage of the top teams in the conference getting their TV time, but I think it really it really hurt the conference so they weren't able... To, um, to have their own network, network for quite some time. So having John Swafford and ESPN kind of solidify this and finally uh, hammer down an agreement, I think it's a huge deal for the conference, um, not only for the fact that they're going to be looked at now kind of with higher esteem, but the fact that they're going to be making so much more money for the conference now that they have this television deal in place with ESPN kind of expanding upon what they already had there. Um, in in their current deal. So extending it for the next 20 years, I think, is huge. And then having your own television and digital network now being launched as kind of independent of everything else, I think, is a big deal as well.
1: I completely agree. Um, so obviously, as we said, you know, we're recording this Thursday evening, uh, the ACC kickoff in Greensboro, North Carolina is uh, about halfway through. They did several interviews today. They've got several more tomorrow. Uh, Mike and I will be covering that event and all the outcomes and quotes and shenanigans, uh, next week on the podcast, but wanted to wait for it to be fully complete before we address it. Uh, as for this show So it is time as we approach the season, we want to start previewing all of the ACC teams. And so the way this is going to work is uh, we've got three teams per week scheduled over the next several weeks that we're going to be looking through, uh, talking about what the season to come looks like for them. Uh, we talk about what's been going on in this offseason, talk about some of the key players on each team, uh, the schedule, and kind of making predictions uh, for what everything looks like for, for each of these teams going forward. And we've tried to break these shows out into themes, so to speak. Uh, we'll we'll get to those as we get to them. Uh, there's a chance, as we said last week, we might bring in a couple of uh, experts along the way from different uh, different sites across the SB Nation network or beyond. Um, basically, just trying to get perspectives from people as close to these teams as possible, so we can figure out you know what what we should expect going into the ACC season. Not that expectations ever really directly indicate what we're actually going to see, especially in a conference like the ACC. But uh, for tonight, to start out, we're going to start with what I refer to as the wheelhouse. So this is Mike's wheelhouse of Virginia Tech. This is my wheelhouse of Georgia Tech. I, I, you know, I'm including you know, I the would, Virginia Cavaliers in here as and well. And as, uh, this is kind of near and dear to Mike's heart in kind of a weird way. Uh, being <laughs> near him geog- geographically, it's kind of like calling Georgia near and near to my heart which again not super accurate um near and dear to your place of residence at the least but um anyways so we want to get started We, we will actually start with the Cavaliers uh looking into their their 2016 season and the Cavaliers obviously one of I believe four different teams in the conference, three in the division to have hired a new coach this offseason. They replaced Mike London with uh, Bronco Mendenhall of BYU. Generally regarded as a pretty good hire. Um, kind of a, kind of one out of left field from what I can gather. Uh, Mendenhall coming from BYU. BYU a very interesting job, obviously given their association with the Church of Latter-day Saints uh, in some different kind of recruiting Limitations and/or advantages that come along with it. A little hard for me to make out, you know, for, to figure out what to make of this. Obviously, again, a lot well, of people think this a is a good a hire. Virginia
0: season uh, preview without but I'm a having little, me start by making fun of Virginia. I, I don't so know so for sure start with what to Bronco expect from, so from Virginia. So I'm, I'm like. one of those guys who thinks that this was an excellent hire for Virginia, but I get to make fun of him to start this off. Um, he moved across the country with his family, obviously, um, coming from Utah. Um, where he coached at BYU, coming to Virginia. And as his house was being completed, he was living out of a trailer with his family. That's right. A guy making millions of dollars a year coming to coach in the ACC was living in a trailer for the better part of um, last winter. So that's hilarious. I, I, fair enough, dude. Uh, you know, comes across the country probably riding a Bronco. Um, and then ends up staying in a trailer. I don't for, know what uh, you expected a from a guy named Brock. Was being completed. So he made he's gonna make three point two five million dollars this coming <laughs> kind of year. So first of a five year deal for Mendenhall. Um, that's a lot of coin. But I think if you're Virginia, you gotta pay somebody a lot of coin when considering that Mike London produced a twenty seven and forty eight record with just one bowl appearance in six seasons. Heck of a recruiter, awful football coach go with Bronco Mendenhall. He's a guy has 99 wins over the course of his uh, collegiate coaching career, um, a, a guy that obviously has done a great job recruiting to a school that was very tough to recruit at um, at BYU for all of uh, the academic uh, standards as well as the religious commitment as well. Um, I call it a commitment because they have that retreat that they go on kind of in the middle of they uh, I don't even know what it's called, they go on, they just leave. Um, they basically just leave for, you know, a year, you know, in the middle of their time there at BYU. Um, it's tough to recruit there, and he did a great job, and he really coached to his talent. Had a lot of, a lot of really decent players at BYU, um, but guys that overachieved consistently. Um, one guy you think of is John Beck, who obviously didn't have a great career in the NFL, but he played at BYU for so long when Bronco Mendenhall was there his first couple of seasons. and kind of came out of nowhere, ended up getting himself drafted into the NFL. So um, he was a guy that had a lot of success at quarterback for BYU. And BYU overall has had a lot of success on the offensive side of the football. So bringing a guy like Mendenhall in obviously will help to hopefully reinvigorate a Virginia offense that has really struggled over the last couple of years.
1: Yeah, kind of, a, kind of an interesting situation, obviously. I mean, he did very well at BYU, uh, frequently winning 10, 11 games per year, uh, which is impressive. Recruited very well. Uh, I, part of me not knowing what to make of it is that there, there's this obvious connection, obviously, with the, the Latter-day Saints church, right? And so... Several Mission, uh, thank you, mission. I was calling it a retreat. Like, you know, I'm that's, Catholic, that's so I kind of kind
0: of threw it through a loop. Uh, I then guess like we you call it a, a mission. mission. That's right,
1: a mission component to it, where players are.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was swung, swinging <laughs> a mess there.
1: Yeah. Usually those last for like a weekend or a week. These last that's for right. years. Um, but. but that's number one for the uh, Basketball Conference ACC podcast. But uh, the, the mission component is an interesting one because players leave for a couple of years and then come back, and eventually you've got this roster where your juniors and seniors are like 24 and 25 years old. Their bodies are more mature than a lot of the guys they're going against. I think it made a big difference when you talk about a lot of the players in the trenches, particularly the front seven on defense and the offensive line on the offense. And that's one of the interesting things and kind of themes to look at as we go through this roster. Is at BYU, Mendenhall was very used to having a lot of big, uglies uh, in, in the trenches. And he doesn't get that at least to start out at Virginia. And, and it, it It makes me wonder, are we going to see a transitionary period for this team? So, you know, this kind of plays into the whole recruiting aspect of things. Because I think we'll Uh, get into Virginia Tech in a few minutes here. But I
0: I think just like Virginia Tech, the University of Virginia, they're going to have to get back into winning the home state. Um, They would lose a lot of the top players to other schools. And Virginia wasn't a competitive destination for quite some time, uh, for obvious reasons, when you struggle as much as they did. I mean, they were having, I believe it was 2012, they were having their best season that they've had in the last five or ten years, and they played against Virginia Tech and got stomped in the season finale after Virginia finally felt like they had a chance against the Hokies. And that's because they've just really struggled recruiting. Obviously, they've pulled in their fair share of guys that have been um, overachievers, but also they've had a couple of guys that – have been blue-chip recruits that, you know, they want to stay close to home. Quinn Blanding is one great example. He's one of the top safeties in the ACC, and he's going to be a very high draft pick when he decides to leave for the NFL, and he's a guy that was one of the top prospects in Virginia when he came out a few years ago, and he's been starting at safety for the Cavaliers for the last three seasons, or this will be his third season, excuse me. So when looking at guys like that, obviously Virginia's got some talent in place, but I think it's going to be a different mindset. I think you saw a lot more speed players on the defensive side of the football. Um, You know, within the the trenches on the offensive and defensive lines, I mean, it's going to be just a different mindset. The offense is going to be much different Uh, defensively. It's going to be a different kind of style. You're not going to see as as fast-paced a defense as maybe you saw with Mike London. They're going to be recruiting a different kind of athlete. Uh, bigger eyes in the trenches. That's kind of been the name of the game for Mendenhall at BYU. So I think that he's going to bring that same mentality to Virginia. Um, I think just kind of in a vacuum real quick, when looking at Virginia's offense, I mean, it's going to go through Matt Johns, a quarterback, who's been a pretty decent game manager the last couple of seasons, but he struggled throwing, throwing interceptions. He had 17 of them last year through 20 touchdown passes, but when you throw 17 picks, it's a terrible ratio, obviously. So um, he's going to have to play better, and Virginia's going to have to take care of the football. It all starts with him. So I think, you know, at least starting with the offensive side of the ball, I mean, I I think Matt Johns will definitely have to be better here as he moves into his senior season.
1: Yeah, only about a 61% completion percentage last year, uh, just under 3,000 yards passing, but as maybe most importantly, his touchdown interception ratio is 20 to 17. That's a lot of interceptions uh, for the amount that he was asked to pass. And what's interesting to me is I I look at this team and who's coming back is, I can't figure out what the offensive identity is here because it's a really interesting matchup where probably your two biggest playmakers are your running backs and Taequann Mizell and Olomide Zaccheaus who both were excellent, but almost did more damage in the passing game than they did in the rushing game. Not to mention that your top receivers, you lose almost all the, you know, all of your top receivers from last year. The best one that you have coming back is Keon Johnson, who had 13 catches. You return from true wide receivers only 18 catches. So, you know, you go into year one of this Bronco Mendenhall era and it's like I kind of don't yeah, know what to expect. I mean, this and is an offense that really got, couldn't throw the ball vertically backs, at all. And I the think that's when you see the their running
0: backs kind of break I, out like of the backfield more of, of a sudden, what, what they're what threat in the passing game than they are in the running game. Because, number one, they couldn't really establish a run um, the last couple of years. And that's been a huge problem for them, obviously. And it contributed a lot to Matt Johns throwing 17 interceptions last year, um, gotten to predictable third and long situations. They knew he was going to throw, and they pressured him. He made a bunch of mistakes. So Virginia's going to have to get back to running the football. And I think when you run the football effectively, it's no secret that your vertical passing game opens up a bit more than it would ordinarily uh, when you're getting about two yards per carry and you're jumping passes off to your running backs out of the backfield because that's the only thing that you have going for you um, when you're in third and long. So, I mean, I think Virginia, it's going to have to be a a complete revolution on offense. I mean, it's just been really a struggle for them. Overall, they just haven't been able to really move the football very well at all. Um, from the quarterback position, I mean, Matt Johns, I think he's good enough to, to compete in the ACC. I don't think it's an issue as far as him not just not being capable, like not having the skill set. I mean, he's a pretty big body, standing at six, you know, over 6'5". Um, he's a guy that's kind of an imposing figure when he stands on the football field, um, a, a guy that, when you look at him it's like, okay, this, this kid can probably be a stud and he has a pretty big arm. so I think that Virginia's offensive line just needs to protect him better. Establishing the run with Taekwondo Moelle is going to be huge. Um, he had 671 yards rushing last year, but he really I, I mean he really struggled in the run game and a lot of it was you know had to do with that offensive line. so it all starts up front. Um, you get the front seven. Um, the front seven playing well. Um, you, you know, you get your five your five linemen there. You get your t- two tight end sets is what Virginia has run a lot out of um, on offense over the last few years, and they've just tried to pound it down your throat, and they're just not that kind of team. They're not built for that. Um, I think Mike London really struggled recruiting on the offensive side more than defensive side, and I think if Virginia wants to improve, their offensive line is just going to have to play much better.
1: Yeah, as you mentioned, Matt Jones, the quarterback that is, is going to be the, the signal caller and, and the guy that is looked to as the leader of the offense. But the three guys that I look at, again, you got Mizell, Zacchaeus, and then the other one being sophomore tight end Evan Butts um, was one of their leading receivers who returns coming to two, 2016. The numbers that are really interesting to me is Mizell had, between his – you know, he was the number one rusher on the team as far as carries and yards. Um, the number two receiver on the team as far as yards, number one as far as receptions. If you combine all of his yards and all of his receptions and carries, uh, he came out at about six and a half yards per touch. Uh, you look at the same thing for Zacchaeus. He came out around close to nine yards per touch. I think those are the two guys you got to look at. And as they look to replace a lot of their receiving threats on the outside, I think Butts is the guy that you have to go to. Those are the three guys you need to get the ball to if you're the Virginia offense. Um, that said, the, the other important part, obviously, to this running game is the offensive line. And like you said, I mean, that's an interesting component here is that when when Mendenhall was at BYU, a big calling card of his was a big physical both offense and defense, and like we said, in the trenches. Um, the, the offensive line coming back at Virginia – Averages about 6'6 and 298 pounds. So under 300 pounds is going to be a change from his line at BYU, which had an average of, I think, about 17 pounds higher. Um, so this this Virginia offense is almost built more like a spread team than it is like a power physical team. And so, again, the question in my mind is, does Mendenhall try to implement this Physical, you know, yeah, I think it's going to be another year or two before we see a Bronco Mendenhall type team with his players and the type of offense that he really likes to run. Um, Mendenhall
0: has, like you said, runs that pro style offense, um, likes to come right at you in the trenches on the offensive and defensive lines. Having an offensive line that's not undersized per se, but it's a lot smaller than the one he had at BYU, like you mentioned. It's going to take some adjusting, and this team is built like a spread team. Mendenhall does not run a spread offense. Um, he likes to have a dropback quarterback, a guy who can make all the pro, for, all the professional throws, um, which I think he has in Matt Johns to a degree. Um, I'm not going to call Matt Johns this guy that's going to be his top NFL prospect, but he's a guy that has a pretty strong arm. He can make these throws, um, and, and he can make all the throws within the offense um, that Bronco Mendenhall wants to run. But I think, once again, the issue is going to be the offensive line is going to struggle, Um, They just continue to struggle in the last few years. I don't see that changing really at all. It's going to take a year or two. I I do really like this Bronco Mendenhall hire. I just don't think it's going to really pay dividends right away like I think some Virginia fans may think.
1: Yeah, and if it's going to, I think that the biggest place you're going to see that is on defense, which is weird because, like you mentioned, Mike London made the most hay in recruiting on the defensive side of the ball. Um, Meanwhile, Mendenhall comes in and is likely to implement his 3-4 system, uh, replacing the 4-3 that London was going to. And it's interesting because you look at the front seven here, and they lose their top three defensive linemen and uh, one of their top, th- you know, top three linebackers. And yet, I'm not worried about de- defense as far as Virginia is concerned. Um, they bring back plenty of guys that actually seem like they might fit the three-four system a little better than the four-three. Andrew Brown, a former five-star recruit, comes in. He he seems ready-made to be that that prototypical 3-4 defensive end up front. Uh, he, he needs to get more involved, honestly. He he did not do a ton last year on that defensive front. Ten games, only two and a half tackles for a loss and one sack. you got to look for more than that from a, from a five-star guy, but if anybody's going to get more from him, I figure that's Mendenhall. Uh, and as far as the linebackers, they bring back almost everybody, and, and a recurring theme that you're going to see across uh, not only this front seven, but across the defense, and honestly across the entire team, is a lot of seniority, a lot of experience. Um, obviously going to take some adjustment on defense to adjust to new systems and such, but at the end of the day, you know, seniority is, is very helpful in doing that and adjusting to, to tough environments and and everything like this. So as far I as I mean, I'd seven, have to agree with you. Um, Mike, does that Mike, you mentioned you a lot of seniority? like that uh, by my help, maybe They're going to be returning as type, at least six or seven, depending on the how their uh, secondary turns out.
0: At least six or seven guys that are juniors. Or older, So there's going to be experience on the defensive side of the ball for Virginia, no doubt about that. Um, their defensive line, they have the linebackers to play in that 3-4 defense, um, like you mentioned. Um, I, I really like Zach Bradshaw as a guy that uh, played really well last year. Micah Kaiser, of course, he was a stud in the middle of Virginia defense all year long. Um, he, along with Quinn Blanding, right in the middle of that defense, those are two guys that you really want to build your build your unit around. I really like that about Virginia. Um, I like their defense a lot more than their offense, and those two players are a big reason why. I think as, as for what you said about Virginia's defense, you know they can contend in the ACC Coastal because when you think about it, there are not a lot of top offenses right now in that division. Georgia Tech's coming off of a year where they really struggled, and they're a one-dimensional team with their option attack, like you mentioned. Um, Virginia Tech. They haven't really had any sort of offense in three years. Now, they're bringing in Justin Fuente. We'll get into that in a second. Um, But their offense has not been good the last few years. Obviously, Miami has struggled offensively. They have the quarterback in Brad Kaya, but the offensive line can't block worth anything. Um, And then when you look at Virginia's schedule, they play a team like Duke. Duke was somehow the third-highest scoring team in the ACC last year which makes no sense to me whatsoever, but that's not exactly an offense that's going to blow you out. I mean, Virginia will be in that game against Duke. Um, Pittsburgh, another team that's not really going to blow you out, if you can stop the run, they have a game manager, and Nate Peterman, playing quarterback, and that's just kind of the way it is with Pittsburgh's offense. I do think Pittsburgh has one of the more underrated offenses in the conference, but my point, my overall point here, is that the Coastal isn't going to have a bunch of offenses that are going to run away from you. Um North Carolina is the one offense is kind of the wild card because if they get good quarterback play, they're going to be every bit as good on offense as they were last year. Mitch Trubisky is going to be very good, I think. So I think when looking at Virginia, I think their defense is good enough to contend here in the ACC. I think it's going to be all about their defense, and I think if their defense plays well, um, the team can overachieve.
1: You know, you brought up Quinn Blanding being in the middle of that defense, and you mentioned before that he might be the best safety in the ACC. I think he, that kid is arguably one of the better safeties in the country. Um, that kid is a ball player. He he reminds me a little bit of Jeremy Cash last year, but with more physical upside and talent. Uh, a guy that just will run around the field and make plays everywhere. That it kind of reminds me a little bit of like a Troy Polamalu from a few years ago, where it felt like the Steelers were calling defensive plays, and ten guys had an assignment, and Polamalu was like, "You figure it out, man. Like you you got it. We trust you." Um, I feel like they could almost do that with Quinn Blanding, where he is an instinctual, just very talented, great player on that defense. And I think it kind of speaks a little bit to the... There's a little bit of a dichotomy with Virginia's entire roster, where there's a couple of guys who are just these bona fide studs on either side of the ball. You talk about Blanding, uh, Andrew Brown being a five-star guy, Taequann Mizell being a five-star guy. And then there's like no four-star guys, and there's a bunch of three-star guys. And it's kind of... Weird how that happens, but uh like you mentioned, I mean, I think this defense is gonna be fine. I think if they're gonna be winning football games in year one under Mendenhall, they're gonna have to lean on this defense, which has a lot of senior, you know, seniors, juniors, you know, veteran guys who have been around the block a couple times. They return a lot of their best players. And so I, I think that if you're winning games in year one under Mendenhall, the defense has to be the calling card. I mean, that is gonna be the the go-to piece of that team is, you know, you're winning low-scoring games, maybe creating some turnovers, uh, a little bit maybe of what looked like Boston College last year, of keeping games close and and using that defense as your main weapon. I think this offense really has to figure itself out. And we look at the schedule, and one of the the big resources I'm going to look at as we go through all these previews is the – the previews that Bill Conley put together for SB Nation, he's the big advanced stats guru for the site. And one of the things that he puts together for every, every team in the power five, as well as the, the entire FBS division is their schedule and what the stats say about their win probabilities. And, and I think Virginia's schedule is very interesting to me. It's, it's very much kind of segmented where the entire month of September, they start their four first games are out of conference. They've got Richmond, at Oregon, at Connecticut, and home against Central Central Michigan. Then in October, they got two games against the Coastal, or excuse me, three games against the Coastal. They go into two games against the Atlantic, and then three more games against the Coastal. Uh, it's, It's very segmented like that. And once you start October into November, you play all these conference games in every single one of them, Bill C lists their win probability as no less than 26% and no better than 45%. So you've got a lot of these games that qualify as something of a chance but not the favorite. And, and I think if Virginia can kind of steal a couple of these, they, they're going to be approaching bowl eligibility. And like I said, I, I don't know what the identity of this team is. I kind of This is one of the mysteries of this conference to me going into the year. Is like I don't know what to expect. But I think if you steal a couple of those conference games and you go maybe hopefully 3-1 and out of conference, a a loss to Oregon seems likely. Connecticut, very much a toss-up. Bill C. puts that at 51%. The other two, Richmond and Central Michigan, you're favored. I think if you beat Richmond, Central Michigan, find a way to beat Connecticut. That's three wins. Maybe you find a way to steal three of your eight conference games and go to a bowl game. I don't know, Mike. What you look at this schedule? Like, what is your kind of analysis?
0: You know, it's a lot along the lines of what you were saying, Joey. Um, you know, it's it's not an impossible slate by any means, but when you look at Virginia against the teams they're going to be playing in the ACC, while they're not playing a ton of powerhouses per se, I think that Virginia is going to be an underdog, at least in the majority of their conference games. Uh, obviously, when you step outside of the conference, um, playing a team like Oregon on the road, uh, that's most assuredly a loss. Um, you're not playing a team like Notre Dame. Now, first of all, Virginia almost beat Notre Dame at home last year. Hail Mary. I mean, Notre Dame was on their backup quarterback. Um Zaire got hurt in that game. Deshaun Kaiser comes in. Of course, we know now how good Deshaun Kaiser is, but he comes into that game pretty much cold off the bench and throws the game-winning touchdown pass to Will Fuller with, I don't know, something like 25, 30 seconds left on the clock and breaks the hearts of Virginia. I think that Virginia not having to play a really impossible slate right off the bat this year is going to be huge. The Oregon game's going to be tough, but they're playing Richmond, UConn, and Central Michigan in their first four games to supplement that game they have on the road at Oregon. I think they could very much win three out of those four games. Now, what do I think is more likely to happen? Probably two and two. Um, I think you beat a team like Richmond, you definitely lose to Oregon. Um, Connecticut's a toss-up, but I think you definitely have a great chance to win against Central Michigan. So I think a 2-2 two and two record there out of the gate is definitely not unheard of. And then the conference schedule, they are playing in the Coastal Division. Um, you know, At Duke, I think it's going to be tough. They play at home against Pittsburgh. That's going to be another tough game. Um, North Carolina at home, that's definitely a loss in my book. I mean, I think North Carolina is going to be one of the better teams in the ACC this year. Um, at home against Louisville, I think that's another loss. I think Louisville could surprise some people in the Atlantic Division this year. They're that team that nobody really likes to talk about. Um, obviously, because of Clemson and Florida, because of Clemson and Florida State, um, it's going to be a slugfest there on the road at Wake Forest. But then they finish up with Miami, Georgia Tech, and Virginia Tech. All three of those teams are going to be much better than they were last season. They're going to be three of three of the teams that should improve the most in the conference. So it's going to be tough for Virginia to make a bowl game. Um, I think a five and seven record is not out of the question. I think they're going to be close. Because I have, I have this sneaky feeling that they're probably going to hang in, in some more ACC games uh, this year than I expect. But um, I think a record like 5-7 and seven is definitely not out of the question. I think that's probably on the high end of wins for Virginia, though. It's going to be a little bit of an adjustment for Bronco Mendenhall and his squad.
1: Bill Conley, the stats say a projected win total of around 5. And that sounds about right to me, probably between 4 and 5 wins this year. Which is not bad for year one under a new regime, talking about a team that last year only won what was it, three, four games. I mean they, they weren't they weren't a particularly good team. Um,
0: yeah, f- four, four and eight last year.
1: The the road schedule looks particularly manageable. You talk about within the conference of at Duke, at Wake Forest. Wake Forest, again, like you said, Slugfest Becoming a better team, but with as much talent as Virginia has, I can see them winning that game. And ultimately, as you mentioned, they're going to be an underdog in most every single game in their conference slate. But in a way, kind of a dangerous uh, underdog, given the level of talent they have at certain positions on that team. So, uh, kind of a, an up in the air, you know, big question of what we're going to see from Virginia this year. Uh, certainly, a transitionary year as they welcome in Bronco Mendenhall but uh, kind of a range of where they might fall it, it, at their best. They might become a bowl eligible team. If not, uh, that, that wouldn't shock the world at all. Mike, we need to move on and go to your version of the wheelhouse. We need to talk about the Virginia tech Hokies. Tell me, so this offseason, season, obviously uh, Frank Beamer retires after a long, illustrious career in Blacksburg. Um, Obviously it's hard to lose a guy like that who has been the identity of that program for so long, but they bring in Justin Fuente out of Memphis, formerly the offensive coordinator of TCU, uh, who has engineered some of the better offenses we've seen over the last half decade. Tell me you know, your feelings, what are your thoughts on him coming in, what are your expectations year one? What's it been like these first few months in the Justin Fuente era?
0: So the thing about Virginia Tech uh, the last few years is that they've had a lot of talent on both sides of the ball, and their team, a, a lot like a lot of the teams we've alluded to in the ACC, they haven't quite played to their talent level. Um, a, a lot of really, really good, solid recruits have been brought in, but overall Frank Beamer and his staff kind of took a step back on recruiting, especially within State of Virginia. Um, the, the most prominent example is a defense fan like Josh Sweat who's from the Tidewater area of Virginia, which used to be Virginia Tech's wheelhouse. Uh, this is our wheelhouse segment this week, Joey, so nothing like dropping a wheelhouse bomb on you here. Um, but that Tidewater area is where Virginia Tech pulled the bulk of their players, and they lost Josh Sweat a couple of years ago to Florida State. Obviously, he's going to come in as a, as a sophomore, and he's, by all indications, going to have a big year for Florida State. So Virginia Tech needs to go back to winning the state of Virginia, and I, I think as far as their players on their current roster are concerned, they're bringing a lot of talent back. Isaiah Ford, best receiver in the uh, one of the best receivers in the conference, um, one of the more underrated receivers in the country. It could be because he's a little bit undersized. Um, he, he is 6'1", but he's not um, he's not exactly uh, got got a lot of weight to him. But he's he's real speedy, really good in and out of his breaks, um, very good route runner, and he's emerged as one of the top receivers in the ACC. Uh, running back position, Virginia Tech finally found a one running back that. I think can really carry can really carry them I mean David Wilson was a guy who who was the last running back to really be able to carry the Hokies on offense Um, and that was that was now four years ago four full seasons ago bringing Trayvon McMillan in last year um, he was able to emerge late in the season as the primary back for the Hokies Um, went over a thousand yards of course late in the season but the real question is going to be the quarterback position they have Brendan Motley who's a senior He's struggled in in parts of his three seasons uh, prior to this coming year. Um, He's more of a runner than a thrower, not the most accurate passer in the world. He was the bonafide replacement last year for Michael Brewer when Brewer got injured, broke his collarbone in the Ohio State game. Uh, Motley started most of the season last year for the Hokies because of that injury to Brewer, but as soon as Michael Brewer came back, he was the guy and stepped right back into his position. So that tells you that Brendan Motley – doesn't exactly instill a whole lot of confidence at the quarterback position, but he is experienced. He's a senior, has ACC play under his belt, Um, a guy that can come in and can definitely give the Hokies meaningful reps at the position. But the one guy everybody's watching is Gerard Evans, a quarterback. He's a JUCO transfer um, out of a community college in Texas, put up really great great numbers on the JUCO level, Um, a guy that really hasn't played major college football yet, but he's – He's a guy that has the talent has a skill set and he stands at six foot 4 235 so he has the size he's got the mobility as well can move in and in and around the pocket which Justin Fuente loves he loves to move his line um, left and right he loves to shift that pocket. He, he's not one of those guys that, ha- that runs that traditional pro style offense. So Gerard Evans um, is a guy that's really going to compete in camp. Um, I know we're going to get into the um, ACC kick- kickoff segment uh, next week but one thing that uh, Justin Fuente alluded to today, as far as the quarterback position is concerned heading into the fall is that Gerard Evans and Brendan Motley have kind of separated themselves as the two quarterbacks. They're going to be competing for a starting quarterback job. So that's the one thing they need to watch. If the Hokies have a good quarterback position, they have the weapons on offense, really good running back and Trayvon McMillan entering his sophomore season, a guy in Isaiah Ford, who's going to be one of the best receivers in the ACC. If they can find somebody to throw him the football and Bucky Hodges, who had a down year last year, but was really good two years ago, kind of burst onto the scene nationally after his huge game against Ohio State in that upset um, a couple of years ago. So Virginia Tech's offense, really good. The offensive line has another year of experience under their belt. They have one of the best guards in the ACC and Wyatt Teller, um, a guy that they really couldn't really find a position for him when he first came onto campus, was primarily a defensive lineman. They switched him over to offensive line. He had a lot of success last year. The Hokies' offensive line as a whole struggled, but he was the one guy in the middle that at, at the guard position that played really well for them. So expect him to have a big year up front for the Hokies. If their offense plays well, they get good play out of the quarterback position, I expect Virginia Tech um, to emerge as one of the better teams in the ACC because their defense, let's face it, they haven't had a great last couple of years. A lot of that has been due to the offensive struggles. Defensive, uh, The defense has been on the field for a lot of the time. Um, The offense has really put them in some tough situations, but Bud Foster – Consistently, year in and year out, puts a top fifteen or twenty national defense um, as far as efficiency and scoring defense is concerned, and I expect it to be no different th- this coming year. So, Virginia Tech, I think they're going to improve. Um, obviously, had had a year last year at seven and six, they win the Independence Bowl in the shootout against Tulsa, but I think this will be a much improved team, especially if the offense takes a step forward. Defense will get a little bit more rest; they won't battle as many injuries. I'm high on the Hokies, not only because I'm an alum, but because I really think that Justin Fuente was one of the best hires in the country, just based off what Virginia Tech needed. They needed a young guy with an infusion of offense, um, offensive-minded coach, which Virginia Tech hasn't had in the longest time, and they were able to keep Bud Foster from from the Frank Beamer staff, which was just a bonus. So I think Virginia Tech's going to be much improved this coming year.
1: The piece that is kind of intriguing to me is that Virginia Tech's offense is not, like you mentioned, it hasn't been good for the last several years, but not for a lack of talent. Uh, there, there is plenty of talent and plenty of, of good, you know, four-star rated recruits on this offense, uh, kind of across the board, at quarterback, running back, wide receiver, offensive line, etc. So, that's that's kind of the interesting thing to me is that they hire this offensive-minded coach. Can he take them? To the next level in year one is the big question in my mind. Now, if I had to ask you, if you had to go with your gut and I put Brendan Motley and Jared Evans, or Gerard Evans, excuse me, in front of you, and I said, I want you to tell me which one of these two guys is the quarterback come game one, which one would you pick?
0: I think it's Evans. Um, He's a guy that on film now it is a junior college. Uh, level of talent. Not to say that there haven't been a lot of junior college players. I mean, there have, but um, I think when looking at Gerard Evans, he's a guy who can move around very well in the pocket and he can throw on the run. Brendan Motley can't throw on the run very well. Um, he's okay in the pocket, not great. Has struggled with his struggle is accuracy at times. I think because of Evans' ability, not only to produce with his feet, but with his arm as well, I think that's what ends up separating him. But I think Virginia Tech will definitely will be a feeling-out process in the beginning because I don't doubt that Brendan Motley will see some playing time. I mean, I do think he's going to get on the field this fall. I just don't know to what extent. I think a lot—a lot of that will, you know, time will tell. Um, but if I had to pick right now, I think it'd be Gerard Evans. Um, you don't bring a junior college quarterback in if you don't intend to play him. And Justin Fuentes bringing him in, and Brendan Motley was kind of a holdover from the Beamer era. And having, um, having Gerard Evans come in, be one of the first signees under uh, Justin Fuente, I think that really tells you something. So you don't bring in a junior college guy if you're not going to play him. I think Evans is going to get his fair shake. And I think if he's good enough in fall camp, he'll win the starting quarterback job.
1: Two more questions offensively. Um, first of all, Trayvon McMillan, what do we expect from him? Is he, is he once again the bell cow? What, what do you think he does in this Justin Fuente offense?
0: He's a bell cow, I think. I mean, um, the one thing about Virginia Tech the last few years is they haven't been afraid to use a lot of different running backs. Um, of course, J.C. Coleman, who you know was five foot seven and pretty quick, um, didn't have the greatest hands in the world, but you know he would take a handoff, he'd show that quick burst through the hole. Um, Shy McKenzie was another guy a couple of years back that played really well. He tore his ACL. They had Marshawn Williams as a primary back a couple of years ago, then he tore his ACL. Um, that's what ultimately gave Trayvon McMillan the chance last year. Is you know the offensive line was struggling. J.C. Coleman um, didn't hit the hole quick enough. Um, didn't have the size to really uh, to really get the extra yard or two at the end of the run. Just because he's five foot seven, and that really hurts when your offensive line is already struggling. So Trayvon McMillan got his shake. Um, ended up with 200 carries last year, which is kind of a surprise considering he played in all 13 games, but he really didn't, um, didn't start producing until the NC State game in October. So he went basically a month without getting a lot of solid production at the running back position. Uh, but he's a guy that's going to be the bell cow. I think Shai McKenzie is going to get a lot of reps. Marshawn Williams seems to still be recovering from that knee injury. We're not sure when he's really going to be healthy again. It was a pretty ugly knee injury he suffered, ACL, MCL, the whole lot. Um, he he's definitely a red zone type back a really big really big guy that you could put in there and um have him get the extra yard or two but trayvon mcmillan is definitely a thousand yard rusher i think he'll be a thousand yard rusher again if he stays healthy um it was a small sample size i think he's got a lot of talent um considering the fact that he really didn't even uh get a lot of carries the first four or five games of last season so I'm really high on Trayvon McMillan. I think the offense is the, the run is going to set up the pass with this offense. We all know that Justin Fuente likes to throw the ball around quite a bit, but I think running the football is what's going to win Virginia tech. A lot of games in the conference, and they're going to have to do that well if they want to improve.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's kind of where, where the talent is. They got several talented running backs on that, on that offense. Last question for you, Mike on the offense, simple one. Uh, do you expect a transitionary period here, so to speak, of offensive kind of inefficiency, or do you think this kind of picks up from day one and uh, they, they don't miss a beat on the offensive side of the ball?
0: Well, I, I kind of hope they miss a beat because their offense has been so bad. Um, uh, you know, I, I just hope they're better, they're better than they were last year. Anything as far removed as you can get from the Scott Loeffler offense, get away from it. Um, don't do what he was doing. Um, I think that they have the the players with the proper skill set for a spread offense that Justin Fuente likes to run. Um, The offensive line's athletic. Uh, They haven't been great, but they're athletic. I think they'll be better with another year under their belt. Quarterback position's going to be huge. Trayvon McMillan, really good running back, I think. Um, A lot of upside to him. The receiving core with Cam Phillips coming into his junior year, he kind of lines up uh, alongside of Isaiah Ford, who gets all the hype just because of how good he is. And then Bucky Hodges, this is a big-time redemption year for Bucky. Really surprised that he didn't have a great year last year. I thought as a redshirt sophomore, if he played re- as well as he did his redshirt freshman year, he would have been off to the NFL. Six-foot-seven frame, originally came in as a quarterback, but really found his uh, hit his stride as a tight end. So I'm expecting him to, to really have a bounce-back year with an improved offensive line, hopefully better quarterback play, and if that's the case, I think Bucky Hodges emerges once again as one of the top tight ends in the country. Um, they have a lot of weapons. I don't think they'll miss a beat. Um, I, I made that joke a moment ago. I just think that I think they'll be much better. Um, it's going to be hard for them not to be.
1: No, you're right. Especially with a as good of an offensive mind at the helms as you have in Justin Fuente. Uh, quickly, defensively, this has been a weird coaching kind of change where the the new regime has not completely flushed out the old regime as Justin Fuente, his new head coach. Did not get rid of longtime defensive coordinator, Bud Foster. This defense comes in, they lose their top two defensive linemen, Luther Maddy and Dottie Nicholas, uh, lose their, their top tackler at, at linebacker and their other, uh, another big starter in Ronnie Van Dyke. And yet, am I crazy for thinking this is just another Bud Foster defense that, like you mentioned, is, is one of the top more more dominant units across the conference and across the country?
0: Uh, they're returning a lot of talent, a lot of veteran leadership. Kenneth Canem is the one guy at defensive end that everybody needs to watch out for. He lined up opposite Daddy Nicholas. Two years ago, they were uh, one. They, they made up one of the best defensive end tandems uh, in college football, uh, especially in the ACC anyway. Um, I, I think Kenneth Canham's due for a bounce back year. He struggled last year. Daddy Nicholas struggled as well. The whole defense really struggled with injuries. Andrew Motuapuaka needs to be better at middle linebacker. Um, he, he struggled filling gaps in the run game he needs to be better in that regard I think he's the leader of the defense um, in the middle, he's making all the calls and he needs to put that defense in position because if he doesn't they're going to have a lot of trouble once again this year secondary, you expect him to be good um, You know, Adonis Alexander uh, had some off the field issues but hopefully he's back and uh, stays out of trouble and, and gets football back on his mind um, Chuck Clark is a guy who's been really good in run defense, and Brandon Faison—he's one of the best AC. He's one of the best defensive backs in the ACC when healthy. Unfortunately, he hasn't been healthy the last couple of years, but he was really good as a freshman in 2013. So, uh, Virginia Tech's defense returns a lot of leadership, and hopefully, a defensive back regime um, it, uh, helps to push this whole thing forward and and move Virginia Tech to greener pastures because they've really struggled the last few seasons.
1: We looked at the schedule and. A little bit like Virginia's in that. the entire month of September, three out of conference games plus the conference game against Virginia or uh, Boston College, excuse me, at home. Uh, moving into October, you've got four conference games into November. Uh, three conference games plus one trip to Notre Dame. The Obviously the game against Tennessee in September is at Bristol Motor Speedway. Talk to me about what you expect from this this Virginia Tech schedule. Like, how it's laid out. Are you are you good with that? Is it is there any particularly scary stretches? Talk to me about that.
0: It's kind of a mixed bag. Um, Liberty, obviously, in the opener. Um, they're going to be able to win that game, I think, before heading to Tennessee. Of course, it's not really a trap game because you're playing an FCS opponent. Um, but I, I think when looking at Liberty, that's going to be a good tune-up game, especially when considering when considering who the quarterback's going to be. um, They're going to be able to kind of work work that in there. Um, Prior to Tennessee, I think Tennessee will obviously be a tough matchup. Um, East Carolina's a team they really struggled with. When Ruffin McNeil was still the coach, he was surprisingly fired, um, which, you know, I think is to Virginia Tech's benefit because for whatever reason the old coaching staff couldn't beat East Carolina with Ruffin McNeil as the coach. Uh, Tech hasn't beaten East Carolina in the last few years, so... Um, that, that's going to be a tough game at home before they hit their ACC stretch. Um, playing at North Carolina to open up – well, I'm sorry, they play Boston College their third game of the year. That's kind of weird. Um, having having a, an in-conference game right after they play Tennessee and then right before one more out-of-conference game is a little bit weird. Um, going to North Carolina is going to be very tough. The Tar Heels are going to be good once again this year. At Syracuse, Dino Babers uh, should be doing a great job. Um and, the, and then looking at Miami, uh, Miami's going to be much better. I think Mark Richt is going to have that program heading in the right direction. They have a, the, one of the best quarterbacks in the ACC and Brad Kaya, as we spoke about last week. Um, I, I think that they could give Virginia Tech a lot of trouble, even though the Hokies play them at home on a Thursday night, which in Blacksburg is a huge deal. Um, the crowd really gets into those Thursday night games. Um, at Pitt, it's a toss up Virginia tech has a lot of trouble playing Pittsburgh at Heinz field. They just haven't really performed well, but again, that's with the old coaching staff, hopefully the new coaching staff has better success Um, at Duke. That's always a tough game just because Duke plays the Hokies So tough Georgia tech's going to be much improved. That's not going to be an easy game by any, by any means, even though it's at home, they go to Notre Dame, Notre Dame in all likelihood their second to last game of the year. Notre Dame is going to be a top 10, top 15 team at worst heading into that game could potentially have something on the line in terms of the college football playoff heading into that game as they head down the home stretch and then Tech finishes off with Virginia. We'd like to make the joke that the Hokies win all these games year after year after year against Virginia. Virginia hasn't beaten the Hokies in forever. I don't think this is the year that Virginia beats them, but it'll be a tougher task heading down the road. I think Virginia's going to have a better chance to beat the Hokies here in the coming years, but I don't think this year's the year. I, I think... To say the Hokies will finish better than seven and five, I think, is a stretch. A lot of people like eight and four. I'm saying seven and five, Virginia Tech always loses a game on their schedule. they shouldn't lose. They have a tough out of conference schedule. You got to play Tennessee in the Battle of Bristol. You have to go to Notre Dame. And, and then in conference, you have to play at North Carolina, but you do get Georgia Tech and Miami at home. I think that's huge. They could win either one or both of those games potentially. But overall, I think Tech goes 7-5. and five. They'll play in a bowl game, once again, that nobody really cares about, probably right around Christmas time, a couple days before, a couple days after. We'll all tune in, and hopefully Tech just starts heading this thing back in the right direction. But I think 6-6 six and six is the floor, 7-5 is most likely, and I think 8-4 and four is probably the best the Hokies will be able to do in year one under Justin Fuente. But hopefully the program starts heading in the right direction.
1: Now, you say Tech, you mean Virginia Tech, right?
0: I do. I mean Virginia but, Tech. Uh, the, the one that's 9-4 and four against the Yellow Jackets.
1: Ouch. Ouch. The, uh, the, the Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University, if, if I'm not mistaken.
0: That's the one, Joey. That's the one. My alma mater. Just
1: double-checking. Just double-checking. Uh, for what it's worth, Bill C. has Virginia Tech projected wins at 6.8, which... Rounds to seven, I think plus or minus one, like you said is about right. Uh, my question for you on this entire schedule, Mike, and this is, this is a deep and thoughtful question that I want you to consider properly. Are you going to the Virginia tech versus Tennessee game at Bristol motor speedway?
0: (sighs) Yeah. In the process of getting tickets, actually. Yeah. Um, Actually, just bought. I just bought Virginia Tech Notre Dame tickets today, so I'm going out to South Bend for that one. So I'm really excited about that. Now, um, will,
1: will you be? If you talk about the the Tennessee game real quick, will you be sitting near like turn four or like the back stretch or how how do we TBD? How do we classify? TBD, Joey. How do we classify sections at this game?
0: Yeah, I mean it's going to be like a hundred and. 80,000 people or something ridiculous. I mean, if you want to go to this game, there's a ticket somewhere for you. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't really know. I, I'm honestly going if, – if I end up going to that game, it's going to be for the atmosphere. Um, I have no intention – I don't want to say no intention, but it's going to be really tough – to see any of the action i mean they're going to be playing football in the infield if i'm at turn four and i'm three and a half miles from the game from the gameplay it's going to be fine i mean it's i mean get me a big screen it'll just be like watching at home i'll tailgate the day away and um we'll have a good time down there potentially but um the only game for sure i know i'm going to as of right now because i have tickets in my possession I'm going out to South Bend because, as I mentioned last week, grew up a huge Notre Dame fan, ended up going to Virginia Tech. It's a little bit like your mixed allegiances with Georgia Tech and Louisville. I got a little bit of that going. Going out to South Bend, used to go to a ton of games there when I was a kid. Really excited uh, to head out there in November. It'll be about five below zero, but it should be fun. Um, still trying to hammer out which home games are going to be at this year for for, for the Hokies. Um that Miami game on Thursday night's enticing. I think the Georgia Tech game is probably not out of the question either. So I'm still trying to hammer that out. But hopefully I get to a Tennessee game.
1: Who are you cheering for in that Virginia Tech-Notre Dame game?
0: Got to cheer for your alma mater, man. Um, not easy because every other week I, I watch Tech and Notre Dame and they never play at the same time, so it's great. I can start my day watching Tech at like noon or 3 o'clock if the Hokies are good. And then I can see Notre Dame play at 3.30, but they've played a lot more night games now recently. Um, so, yeah, we'll have to see. But um, I'm not sure Virginia Tech – I mean, we'll, we'll know a lot more by the end of November, but I'm not sure Virginia Tech's going to have much of a chance in that game against Notre Dame, at least on paper, but we'll have to see. All right, Joey, so with that being said, um, yeah, I think 7-5 is going to be the record for Virginia Tech. But with that, it's time to finally – Talk about Georgia Tech. We've been talking about the Wheelhouse now for pretty much the entire episode. Let's get into your alma mater, the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. Obviously, a struggle last year. Uh, offense struggled, defense struggled. Had a weird win against Florida State. Do you expect to bounce back? Uh, what has happened or transpired here in the off season that gives you some hope heading into next season?
1: You know, I feel weird following up. Uh, you know, Virginia off season. They hired a new coach. Virginia Tech, offseason, hired a new coach. Georgia Tech, offseason, kept the same coach and only really replaced one assistant. Um, it was a pretty stable offseason relatively as far as coaching staff, as far as roster. Um, they The second offensive line coach, Dave Olkoski, was replaced uh, by Ron West, uh, was the secondary offensive line coach that was brought in. Uh, other than that, the, the entire story of the offseason season for Georgia tech has been just getting healthy. Uh, they, they suffered so many injuries both before and during last season that it, it kind of resulted in this team that in the, in the preseason was built up as like a dark horse playoff contender. Justin he- Thomas was like a Heisman contender, all of this, all this hype around this team that ended up winning three games <laughs> and and was ultimately, you know, one of if not the single biggest disappointment of the the entire season for the college football universe. But at the same time, it's not that there was any, you know, any any sort of expected fall off there. I mean, there were there were several seniors, especially on the offensive side of the ball, that left the team for graduation purposes. But ultimately, it was a lot of injuries. It was a lot of bad luck that resulted in an eight game difference between the win total in 2014 and the orange bowl run and the three win total in 20, 2015. So I do expect this team to bounce back. Uh, obviously healing up from injuries and getting a lot of players back is a big piece of that, as well as some experience now under the belt of the number of freshmen that were forced into action in 2014 in 2015, that were not maybe ready for what they were asked to do, but in 2016 they're a little more seasoned, a little more experience under their belt, and really ready to contribute at the college level. So, in your opinion, and this
0: is kind of an off-the-wall question that I was going to save till towards the end, but um, I think it kind of it's a nice reflection of last year, and maybe it can springboard you into talking a little bit more about the team heading into this year. Um, what was more surprising to you last year? upsetting Florida State or losing to Miami by 17.
1: Oh easily upsetting Florida. Well, you know what I shouldn't say that because it's it's The Miami game they've struggled with Miami pretty much the entire Paul Johnson era and like I said last week I mean it is so frustrating because it's not like Miami is particularly disciplined And you feel like discipline is the one thing you have to be if you're going to stop Georgia Tech's offense. There's a lot of smoke and mirrors kind of involved, misdirection and things like this. And so you would think that a less disciplined team would really suffer. And yet Miami hasn't been that, but they've had every bit of success in the last several years. Meanwhile, the Florida State game, obviously they come on this big, bad ACC winning streak. Again, everyone kind of expects that they're going to lose to Clemson later in the year, but... Uh, They come up against Georgia Tech, which has lost several games in a row. They don't look good, all this. But in the lead-up to that game, I was tailgating and talking to some friends and family and telling them, you know, as much as Florida State looks great and Georgia Tech does not look good at all, weird stuff just kind of finds a way to happen in Bobby Dodd Stadium in night games. Um, and, And I've seen that the entirety of the Paul Johnson era. And so in a weird way, I was almost Almost more surprised, I guess, by the Miami loss. Um, I don't know. Beating Florida State and losing to Miami by more than two touchdowns, neither neither of those was surprising. Um, And I think you also have to kind of consider the fashion in which they lose to Miami where Justin Thomas goes out on either the first or second drive of the game and just kind of a continuation of the injury theme we've seen all year. So kind of hard to pick. Uh, between those, neither one was particularly surprising to I me mean, in, in kind of weird ways.
0: Yeah, I mean, um, you know, like you said, Miami is the team that you and I both love to hate just because they aren't nearly as good as they used to be, but they still give everybody a bunch of trouble. Um, they might turn around with Mark Richt, who knows? I, you know, I'm leaning on the side of, yeah, they're going to turn it around. Um, so, Georgia Tech last year. One in six in games decided by eight points or less. Injuries, we've kind of spoken about already. Um, Do you think that the turnover bug hurt them, or do you think it was just a combination of, hey, offensive line didn't play as well, defense being put in tough spots? What do you think contributed to that? Because one in six in games decided by eight points or less, I mean, you're sitting there at three and nine at the end of the year, but you could just as easily be six and six.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I've talked about that a little bit on the blog recently is that uh, they were they were pretty amazingly unlucky all of last year um, in in just several different game situations that if one or two plays go differently, they they win games. And ultimately, if they were just they just had average luck as a team, they'd probably win six or seven games, which is a crazy amount of difference from where they actually ended up. Um, You talk about the turnovers. uh, I think that was a, a Big thing for their offense as far as how young all their players were, especially the skill positions. Uh, Marcus Marshall, very talented. uh, B-back, coming back, should be a a starter this year on offense. As a true freshman, had problems fumbling the ball. Um, Justin Thomas last year, the more the season kind of wore on and and he kind of realized he couldn't count on all these freshmen and, and young players and inexperienced players around him, uh, started to force the ball more and more, both in the passing game as well as kind of making poor decisions in the option game to, to try and do too much himself or, or something like that. And so that resulted in some interceptions, et cetera. Um, obviously, injuries kind of caught up to the team. There were players that shouldn't have even been playing last year that were starting the game, at, at starting games at ABAC uh, during the season. There were red shirts burned left and right. I mean, it was it was a weird, just bizarre year. Paul Johnson talks about he's been in the coaching industry for several, several years, uh, decades, and he's never had a season quite like last year was. Um, and, and I think that's something that a lot of people don't really realize is just the level of the injuries and the crazy things that happened. Um, Adam Gotsis gets thrown out of the North Carolina game for targeting basically because he tackled Marquise Williams blum being six foot five.
0: It's the worst rule in college football, Joey. And, uh, you know, they just have to do something about it. You can't just throw people out off of a questionable targeting call because you rarely get a targeting call that's actually targeting in college football. It's always kind of some, some weird thing. Somebody lowers their head. Somebody's bigger than somebody else. And they just happen to have a big hit. I mean, that rule needs to be changed, obviously. And, um, Having that stuff happen, obviously, with this in that game was was huge and yeah, being one of the deciding factors in that ball game in my opinion.
1: Definitely, you talk about it, like that's something that should probably be overturned more than we see it overturned, but I'm sure we'll get to that more in this season. But things like that, where he gets thrown out of that game, at the time, Georgia Tech had a three-touchdown lead, they end up losing the game. Um, you have to think that if they have their best defensive player on the field... I don't know. Maybe they win. Um, you know, so just a combination of crazy things. Offensive line was nowhere near as effective as you thought it might be. Uh, just, a, just a weird year, and I, I think the kind of the prevailing assumption has been that the team in 2014 uh, probably finished out a little better than it actually was. The team in 2015 probably did not finish quite as good as it was, and so ultimately... What Georgia Tech's team is right now is probably somewhere in the middle of those two.
0: So that kind of brings me to my next question. So uh, you kind of answered that with with the 2014 record, 11 and three, kind of seems like an aberration. Um, just kind of considering where Georgia Tech's been the last five years, a 36 and 30 record overall, um, a team that's been in the eight and five, seven and six range. Of course, for the last two years, being the kind of aberrations, one really high, um, being 11 and three. Really high amount of wins, and then of course, last year an absurd amount of losses going one six in games aside by eight points or less. I think that's really a contributing factor to being three and nine. Um, in my opinion, and Joey, t- tell me if you agree as somebody who covers Georgia Tech extremely closely. I think this is for the most part an eight and five, seven and six type team year in and year out, depending on the schedule, depending on the non-conference, and they have a ceiling of probably 9 or 10 wins and a floor, much like we saw last year. I think with the option offense the way it is, um, you never really know. You know, If the defense struggles and the offense is all of a sudden that rushing attack is shut down and they're forced to throw for the entire game, Georgia Tech finds themselves in a world of hurt. Um, obviously, this, this team is pretty well coached. I don't think it's it's a matter of them not being disciplined on either side of the ball. Um, I think penalties hurt them at times last year, whether or not they were warranted. Gotsis obviously not being warranted. Um, but I, I think overall it's a pretty well-disciplined team. They they usually don't turn the ball over a ton. Um, those option attacks tend to be one of the more disciplined um, offenses in football. Um, you saw that with Navy when Paul Johnson was there. You see that with Navy now and then, of course, with Georgia Tech. Um What is your opinion, ceiling, floor, overall opinion of Paul Johnson, uh, 62-44, and heading into his ninth season at Georgia Tech? Uh, What's your opinion of of him, of the coaching staff as a whole, Um, areas to improve, uh, your just overall feeling about Georgia Tech heading into the fall?
1: Well, I'll start by saying that you look at the last two years, and if I told you that over a two-year span, the team won 14 games, so they're, therefore they average seven wins per year. You could look at any two-year stretch over the last 15 years of Georgia Tech football, and that wouldn't shock you a bit, right? I mean, that's that's pretty par for the course. What's weird is that you saw 11 wins in one year and three in another. I mean, so that's, like you said, it's, it's a little bit of an aberration of kind of, how did we get here? Um, and a lot of people aren't really sure what to make of it is, you know, within within two years, you've seen this complete, like, sine wave of, people ready to fire Paul Johnson, people ready to anoint Paul Johnson as king, and now people ready to burn Paul Johnson at the stake in the town square, and...
0: What have you done, what have you done for me lately? Sort it, of it, and that's
1: exactly it. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a what have you done for me lately kind of thing, where it doesn't really make a whole lot of logical sense, but that's kind of where we're at. Um, realistic ceiling and floor, if you talk about like on a consistent level, I would it's weird because I said the floor is actually higher than what you saw last year. I think last year was as, as much of an anomaly as you're going to find in college football, just the perfect storm of terrible things happening that are kind of out of your control. And ultimately you are, you're paying the Piper for all that good luck you got the year before. Um, I, I would have a hard time imagining a Paul Johnson coach, Georgia tech team losing more than like six, maybe seven games per year. Um, at the very worst, you figure this is a bowl-eligible team in any given year. Ceiling, realistic ceiling, you know, if the perfect storm kind of happens and you get a lot of seniors on the team, it's, it's a little bit of what you saw in 2014, right? It's, you know, this 10, 11-win type, type of team. But ultimately, in between all of that, you're going to sit there in that 7 to 8-win range every year. And, and that's something that a lot of Georgia Tech fans kind of fight with themselves about is, am I okay with that? You know, can Georgia Tech be better? And there's a lot of factors that play in. Obviously, you got the academic arm. Uh, you've got the ACC versus the SEC. You're in Georgia. You know, you're in SEC country, but the ACC is still a good conference. Um, and so, there, there's all these different things that come into play of, of recruiting to this program and, and stocking this team with talent. So, I think ultimately, in any given season, you should be surprised if they finish with less than six wins or more than nine or ten um it's it's it should be pretty stable not a super high ceiling not a super low floor um just kind of an above average team in the world of college football even among uh, a power five programs
0: yeah i mean i think if you had to stack up just the acc coastal georgia tech is one of those teams that you have to watch because you just don't know you know if they, they flipped that one and six and in games decided by eight points or less. They flipped that to six and one. All of a sudden, you got a team that's obviously much more formidable than they were last year. Um, I, I also think it was an aberration for Georgia Tech. I, I expect them to be much better. Um, I like the eight and five prediction, or, you know, if you count the bowl game, I think they could be eight and four. I, I think that they're a team that could actually finish ahead of Virginia Tech when it's all said and done in the Coastal Division. I mean, I think that's the kind of ceiling they have. Um, I think North Carolina is the favorite in the Coastal. Miami, Virginia Tech, Georgia Tech, Pitt, I think all four of those teams have a chance. And if you had to have, like, a dark horse, I think Duke is the team that everybody forgets about just because they're so boring. Um
1: no love lost for Duke on this podcast
0: man oh man um, you got that right but no I, I look at Georgia Tech schedule this year um, and, and, I, and I'll give the floor to you here in a second as to what you think for this particular um, this particular season open up against BC and Ireland obviously kind of a unique game there um, in my mind I think that's a win for Georgia Tech Boston College Pretty good defense, but I don't think they're quite as good as the, as the statistics may have suggested. Um, they were terrible last. They were a terrible team last year. Um, there's kind of no way around it. There was no bad luck involved. Boston College was just a terrible football team. Um, in my opinion, I think Georgia Tech's much better than Boston College. It's going to be just kind of a weird game because they're going to Ireland. You never know what to expect. They're going over playing in Europe. Different time. Um, it's going to be a very weird game. i like Georgia Tech to win that one. They come home, they play Mercer the following week. In my opinion, they're 2-0. and um, Looking at Vanderbilt and Clemson are their next two games, both at home. Vanderbilt, you never really know. They have an interesting football program. Um, their whole athletics department really is very interesting to me. Um, we can get into that another time. But um, I-, I think that's a game Georgia Tech will definitely be competitive in. Clemson, it's a game, in my opinion, they lose just because I don't think anybody's beating Clemson this year in the ACC. Um, Miami, you get them at home as well. Um, I, I like Miami this year. I think they're going to be pretty good. I think they'll definitely be improved if the offensive line's better. Um, but when looking at the Hurricanes, can their offensive line actually play to their ability? I think if they do, they'll be much better. It'll be a tough game for Georgia Tech, but I think the fact that they get them at home I, gives the Yellow Jackets a great chance. Um, it's a weird schedule for Georgia Tech. Those are the first five games. Georgia Tech, in my opinion, can easily be anywhere from 4-1 and one to maybe 3-2. and two. In that stretch, I have a really hard time seeing them losing three out of their first five games, just given who's on the schedule. Um, but, Joey, I'll, I'll give the floor to you. Um in regards to the first five or six games on their schedule where you think they could possibly be um, heading into the back half of the ACC.
1: Yeah. The thing that bothers me is you, you come off of a year in 2015 when the offense was largely struggled to just straight up ineffective and largely because of problems on the offensive line. And you go into these first five games and four of them, you figure, you know, big time defenses, right? Boston college, Vanderbilt, Clemson, all very good defenses going to cause a lot of problems for an offense if if they can't block the front seven of those of those defenses. Uh, you might even look at the Pittsburgh game there in the middle of October as four out of your first six games against pretty good defensive units. And so that's the part that worries me. Um, Boston College, like you said, very beatable, but you know as as much as last year you could beat Boston College by scoring ten to fourteen points you still have to score 10 to 14 points on what was an elite defense, a, a top five defense by all, by all accounts. Um, and so that, that is a game that is really intriguing to me. I, I'll actually be there in Dublin uh, at the game. Uh, we'll, we'll see what the, what that does for the podcast as far as having to find a guest host or uh, me call in, but I think that'll be a pretty cool one to be at. Then you come home and you have four straight home games, which is weird. And honestly, Your next seven games, six of them are at home. Uh, It it lays out pretty weird from a home and away standpoint. Basically, November you get to, and you've got three out of four games are away, at North Carolina, at Virginia Tech, home against Virginia, at Georgia. That does not bode very well. So Georgia Tech has got to make a lot of hay uh, by the time you get to about Halloween, or else you're kind of in a tough spot of, of going on road games to play. Arguably the best team in the Coastal hostile road environment against Virginia Tech, home against Lord knows what you're going to get from Virginia, and then on the road, hostile environment against your state rivals. Uh, so, it, kind of a weird, like you said, kind of a strange schedule layout for Georgia Tech. Don't know exactly what you're going to get. They need to, It's kind of front-loaded, hopefully, with wins. Uh, you, you hope that they, and you know, I say you, I hope that they win three games out of the gate there against Boston College, Mercer, Vanderbilt. Uh, and then... As far as where they sit in the Coastal, it's it's really strange, obviously, because you're Georgia Tech, you've got the same coach, same system, uh, just players kind of returning. Meanwhile, a lot of the division is changing around you. You've got three different divisional opponents that are bringing in new coaches in Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Miami. Uh, you play against Georgia that's bringing in a new coach. Um, Boston College, like, you don't know what you're going to get. So just kind of a strange time. Um, you look at the out-of-conference schedule, Mercer, Vanderbilt, Georgia Southern, and Georgia, hopefully you go three and one during that stretch. Not impossible to lose a second one, either to Vanderbilt or Georgia Southern. Um, so, so really weird, kind of a strange schedule this year as far as who you play and when you play them and where you play them. Bill C has them at 5.6 projected wins. That is just below that six-win threshold. He notes in his preview that that does not account for injuries and such, and he would project somewhere actually more like six to seven wins, Um, but ultimately kind of hard to tell where this team ends up in the Coastal when it's all said and done. So
0: Joey, in my opinion, when looking at the schedule, um, obviously, like I alluded to, if you win three out of your first four games, I think you're in great shape if you're Georgia Tech or Paul Johnson to make a bowl game. Um, There are six wins I'm looking at on their schedule just right off the bat you win three out of your first four you beat bc you beat mercer you beat vandy clemson's probably lost right and and miami miami's mm-hmm. gonna be a tough game so you win three out of your first five games coming down the stretch they have georgia southern and duke both at home i really like their chances to win both of those games and they play virginia second to last game before that in-state rivalry like you alluded to well there's six wins right there and that's before you get into the games that they could possibly win they're just complete toss-ups. The Pittsburgh game is a toss-up. The Virginia Tech-Georgia Tech matchup, in my opinion, is a toss-up. Um, Georgia is definitely a toss-up. Even though you're going on the road, you only lost him 13-7 to last year and you had your worst season probably the last 10 years. Georgia wasn't very good either, but that gives you an idea. They have a first-year head coach who's never seen the option before. Um, Kirby Smart has never coached against the option. I don't know what they're going to do there um, at Georgia. Um, I, I like, I like the chances of Georgia Tech to get at least six wins, and that's before the toss-up games. I think eight and four pretty realistic. Eight and five with the bowl game. If they even if they lost the bowl game, that's worst case scenario. I think eight wins is there. I think Bill C is under on this one. He's right at five point eight. He's being real conservative. That's that's my conservative mark. I completely understand that, but I think Georgia Tech easily in the clubhouse with seven more likely for eight wins, and I think they have a great chance. Um, they have a great chance depending on what kind of bowl game they get into.
1: I would agree with that, and you you bring up Georgia. Georgia's kind of a, a another one that is a, a little bit like the Virginia Tech-Virginia uh, rivalry where Virginia Tech has just owned that for the better part of a decade and a half. Georgia kind of the same way in that rivalry, but at the same time they come into year one under Kirby Smart, I don't know what they're going to have this year. Honestly, there's a lot of t- players, you know, a lot of people out there that are thinking – this might be a, you know, SEC championship type of team. I'm not so sure that I see that. Uh, with what they're bringing back, the, the coaching staff they're bringing in, I think the hype is is much higher than what they're actually going to get. And so I think that's actually a pretty winnable game in Sanford Stadium as, as much as those go. Uh, obviously, time will tell may come mid-November, and I've got an egg on my face that, you know, Georgia's a national title contender or whatever. But uh, as, as it stands right now, I mean, like you said, Six seems pretty reasonable. There's there's pretty winnable games across this schedule, and if you can steal one or two against teams that are very much capable of giving games away, especially to a team with a weird offensive system like Georgia Tech's, uh, I, I mean eight eight nine wins is not out of the question. I'm not going to predict that, uh, but I think I think seven to eight wins sounds about right. I think Georgia Tech's fan base starts to calm down about Paul Johnson's future and his his fate at about that eight win mark some of them might need nine um but ultimately they need they need a sign of progress from last year aside from the fact that there was just bad luck i mean i think with again with decent luck this is about a six win team i think people want a little more than that so seven to eight wins hopefully eight to nine but you know time will tell it kind of a weird way hard to predict at this point for georgia tech
0: well, Joey, I'm, I'm right there with you. Um, seven or eight wins, I think that sounds right about um, right about where they could finish. Um, so I, I think with that, Joey, we're already knocked three teams down as far as our season previews are concerned. Uh, Eleven more to go, right?
1: That's right. Uh, in fact, I actually think we're going to go for 12. I think we'll preview Notre Dame as well as the uh, sort of ACC member, something close to that, you know.
0: Quasi, right? Quasi. Yeah.
1: in effect, ACC member, good enough. Um, yeah, we'll do this. We'll do about three teams per week over the next month or so as we prepare for the season. Um, as we mentioned earlier, might be some guests involved, etc. Um, as they, you know, as they come up, if you have questions about your team or a team that we talked about the week before, you know, please shout us, shout us out on uh, Twitter, give us an email, whatever you got to do. Uh, you know, we want to we want to interact with the fans here. So so let us know what questions you have about what we're saying. Mike, we, we asked for questions last week, a couple times. Speaking speaking of interacting with the fans, right? Oh, that that is the number one thing about this show is that social media interaction. So um, good,
0: so good. We saved it for last. Yeah, <laughs> no
1: doubt. Uh, so we got uh, a whopping one question uh, to the Basketball Conference Podcast. You can reach us on Twitter at bc podcast acc. I am at FTRS Joey. He is at Mike McDaniel ACC. You can email us at BasketballConferencePodcast at gmail.com. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. Uh, yes, that yes is we're
0: on iTunes now. We
1: are on iTunes, uh, as, as a matter of fact. However, Mike, we got a question last week from one of our loyal from the Rumble seat readers over on the SB Nation Network, uh, Paul Benoit and or Paul Benoit. I don't know how we're pronouncing this. I'm just going to call him Benoit. Let's just go with that. Benoit is good. Benoit's good with me. Um, so Paul tweeted us three separate times and asked us kind of some different questions, but ultimately is looking to talk about the, the coaching hires in the ACC in the offseason. So we, we talked about, again, Justin Fuente, Bronco Mendenhall. We also talked about Miami with Mark Richt and Syracuse with Dino Babers. And, and Mike, the big question here is these four hires, I think a lot of them kind of are looked at as good hires. The question here is, do these hires elevate the ACC? Are we are we kind of in the process of seeing the ACC grow and be improved on a national scale as we see some of these hires?
0: I, I think without question, um, when looking at the ACC, it was the Atlantic Division with Clemson and Florida State the last few years, and then everybody else in the Coastal with all their mediocre coaches. Um, Larry Fedora has done a great job in North Carolina. Um, But outside of Fedora, it's been a real struggle in the ACC. Al Golden has struggled. Frank Beamer had struggled. Paul Johnson struggled last year. Of course, we we got into the 11 wins a couple years ago. He struggled last year. Um, I think when looking at the Coastal Division, they just had turnover at Pittsburgh. Of course, uh, with Chris leaving and, and Narduzzi coming in, it's been just kind of a whirlwind in the Coastal Division. But all of a sudden, you get all these great hires, in my opinion, you had to elevate one division or the other. It had to be the Coastal Division. And you get you land Mark Richt, Justin Fuente. Um, you land a guy like Bronco Mendenhall in Virginia, Dino Babers at Syracuse in the Atlantic. I, I really like what has happened to the ACC coaching-wise, mostly in the Coastal and under-the-radar hire for Syracuse in the Atlantic. I really like where the ACC is heading, and I, I do think that these coaching hires have definitely elevated the conference.
1: It's like I feel like there, there is easily some hype around every coaching hire. It's like, oh, this seems like a good hire, you know, whatever. But as much as that is the case, like I legitimately look at every single one of these hires on an individual scale, and I feel like every single one of them is in position to elevate those programs. Mark Richt is an elevation over what Al Golden was. Um, Bronco Mendenhall, an elevation over what Mike London wants. Dino Babers, better than Scott Schaefer. And I think at least in the last couple of years, Justin Fuente better than what Frank Beaver was. And maybe that's just wishful thinking. Maybe, you know, we'll be corrected on one or more of those in the coming years. But ultimately, I'm I'm with you. I mean, I think that each of these guys make their programs better. And the the coastals kind of in a weird place right now where, like, I look for a team with a weak coach. I don't know that I can find one. Um I, I mean, David Cutcliffe at Duke, we've established as one of the better coaches in the in the conference, if not the country. I you know, I will go to bat for Paul Johnson and what he's done at Georgia Tech. Look at Fuente was one of the hottest coaching prospects on the market. Mark Rick, what he did at Georgia, it's kind of unbelievable. They fired him. Uh Mendenhall, etc. I mean, you can go up and down. Larry Fedora at UNC, all of this. Uh, it's like this is sneakily becoming one of the better just top to bottom divisions in college football, Pat Narduzzi at P- Pittsburgh. I mean like this is, there's not like an easy win at this point in this division, which is kind of weird to think about for a, a division that has had so much parody to the point that it's comical uh, over the last few years. And so I, I absolutely think that these hires elevate this division and the conference as a whole as a result.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It elevates the division, elevates the conference. Um, you know, adding the guys that you add into this conference. I mean, we had some pretty good coaches in the conference to begin with. And then all of a sudden, to build on a Dabo Swinney, to build on a Jimbo Fisher, um, Frank Beamer obviously came down in recent years, but he had the, the historic um, success of Virginia Tech. Um, I think you build on that success. Virginia Tech brings in Fuente, Mendenhall coming into Virginia. Babers at Syracuse. Nobody's really talking about that hire just because of everything else that happened within the ACC. One of the better hires in the conference is going to be Dino Babers. That offense is going to be something else here in a year or two um, because he had quite the offense at Bowling Green. So I really like that hire for Syracuse. I kind of had to think outside the box to really resurrect that program. Um, but yeah, no, I, th- I I agree with you. Um, conference as a whole has definitely improved. One of the better coaching divisions in college football. if They all coach to their potential. No easy wins. ACC gets better. Um, less parity for sure. I mean, I think that a lot of the teams will be um, will be right around where they should be. You get a lot of parity where you see like, okay, Florida State and Clemson, and then oh, it's everybody else. But I think you're going to start to go down the road where everybody starts playing up to their potential. You get a really fun race. To see who ends up going to the ACC championship game uh, come December.
1: Yeah, like you mentioned, Babers, I, I figure is going to elevate that Syracuse program quite a bit with what he did with Bowling Green, et cetera. Uh, we'll, we'll actually talk about Syracuse next week. Uh, we've got the uh, the former Big East section coming up next week. Will be the the theme of the show, uh, but we'll get to that then. Uh, Mike, as with last week, this has been fun. We. I think that we are considered troopers at this point for the level of technical difficulties that we've fought through. However, we are a legit podcast now and that we are on iTunes. So please subscribe and, and review and maybe wait another couple weeks to review before you really get a feel for how good and or working on being good that we are. Um, so, but please subscribe and, and download and comment and, uh, email us like we said basketball podcast at gmail.com uh, at BC podcast ACC on Twitter I am at FTRS Joey Mike is at Mike McDaniel ACC uh, let us hear from you give us your questions uh, give us your reviews feedback you know if something we could do better just let us know um, but Mike I, I look forward to coming back and and continuing with some of these previews and talking about that ACC kickoff uh, early next week.
0: Yeah, it sounds good, Joey. I think that um, we're heading in the right direction. Um, for those of us, for those of you that have been listening, thank you once again uh, for tuning into episode two. We appreciate it. We're gonna be back, be back next week, back and better than ever. Hopefully, some less technical difficulties, but hopefully the quality, as far as the sound is concerned, in this episode was a little bit better. We're heading in the right direction. We know our stuff. This podcast is going to be something really good. And we hope you guys continue to listen. And uh, please chime in with your reviews, as Joey said. Ask us any questions you may have, any suggestions on how we can make this podcast better. We're absolutely open to anything and everything in regards to how we can improve. Um, So we appreciate all the feedback. And, Joey, we'll talk next week.
1: Mike, it's been fun. Looking forward to it. As always, until then, go ACC.